Hey everybody, and welcome to ARE Live. I'm Chris Hopstock, Architect Education Specialist here at Black Spectacles and your host for ARE Live. Today, we're going to be joined by our guest expert, Garrick Baker, who's going to be talking all about egress systems. If you think of any questions you'd like to ask Garrick during the Q&A, make sure to post them in our ARE community. Go to community.blackspectacles.com and post your questions or comments on the Understanding Egress Systems episode page. Everyone who posts in our community thread today will be entered to win a free Black Spectacles t-shirt, so head over and just say hello. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to see if you won. Our next ARE Live episode will be March 16th, 2023, when when we'll discuss using firm financial documents like the Profit Loss Statement, or PL Statement, to evaluate the financial health of architectural firms. You can go to go.blackspectacles.com forward slash podcast to sign up or check out this episode's community page for the registration link. To learn more about the study materials Black Spectacles offers or to watch this episode again later, go to go.blackspectacles.com. Although all of our episodes are available in both video and podcast audio formats after the broadcast, we'll be sharing Garrick's screen today uh, during the live, so we recommend watching the webinar to better see how he works through the material. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's guest, Garrick Baker. Garrick is an architect at Bruce McMillan AIA Architects and is also a virtual workshop instructor for Black Spectacles. Garrick has worked on a multitude of project types that include historic preservation, new construction, and renovated spaces, and he's also worked with organizations like Young Professionals, the local and statewide AIA Kansas Board of Directors, and more. So welcome, Garrick. Thank you, Chris. I'm excited to be back again. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So um, take us through this project that we're going to talk about today, and uh, let's get into it. Okay, we'll just dive right on in then. So as Chris had mentioned, um, I am a Black Spectacles uh, online workshop instructor. So uh, today's discussion is going to be structured a lot of how we do our workshops online. Typically, we start out with our scenario that we are given. So the project that we're working on today, uh, this is actually a project that we have uh, been working on for a couple months now, um, but we went ahead and we changed it just special for uh, today's presentation, but we're calling it the Black Spectacles Brewery. So let's go ahead and read through our scenario. Black Spectacles is opening its own brewery with an existing building. The team will renovate the space. The building is constructed of wood studs, gypsum board sheathing at the interior and siding at the exterior. The roof structure is a truss system with plywood sheathing and architectural shingles. The flooring is sealed concrete floor. The building does not currently have a sprinkler system. The building will be equipped with a brewing area, tank storage, and full commercial kitchen. Restroom and plumbing calculations have already been performed. At this time, the second floor attic space is not being considered during the renovation and will not be evaluated for egress compliance. Determine if the building provides adequate egress design to be functional following the renovation of the proposed layout. So now that we have uh, our project outline and objective, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll take a look at our floor plan here. And we're going to frame today's workshop kind of around the who, what, where, when, and how method. When first learning how to design egress systems, it can get confusing with a lot of different avenues. So the who, what, where, when, and how method can create a quick, easy way to double check yourself when going through your design. First, let's look at the who. Who needs to exit the building? This is where our occupant load comes in handy. Second, consider what. What do we need to do to get these occupants to safety? This will be our number of exits. Third would be the where. So where are we having these people exit the building? And then fourth is our when. When do we need to have these people out of the building? This sets up our question of determining the travel distance and our overall fire rating. The fire rating of components allows individuals enough time to exit the space. And then finally, the how. 
So during this, we describe how you have accomplished your egress plan for the project. This provides you with a way to make sure you can double check yourself in the end. I love the way you broke that down, Garrick. This is, uh, I, th I think this is really useful. And um, like, like we said today, we're going to be going through egress design from beginning to end like you would um, in an office if you were working on this project. But we all know that the ARE is not really structured that way. There's not a specific exam division on egress. Um, egress is really um, covered across a few different divisions from PA through PDD. So I thought it would be helpful just before we jump in to, to talk about that a little bit um, and to talk about which of these questions apply to which divisions. So um, for the PA division, if you look at objective 2.1 for PA, it's about identifying relevant code requirements for buildings and site types. I think when a lot of people think about that for, for PA, they're thinking about um, maximum building area and height and construction types and things like that. But um, I think it also applies a little bit to egress. Uh, if you look at the last sentence there for that objective, it talks about uh, conducting an initial code analysis. And I really think that um, that initial code analysis should at least consider the, the who and the what in this question. So who, what types of occupants are you going to have and um, probably how many exits you need. I, I think you're thinking about that in PA. When we when we move to the PPD division, um, we've got objective 2.2, which talks about applying the building code to the building design. Um, that pretty clearly covers a lot of egress components, and the um, NCARB's information about objective 2.2 even talks about fire separation, required egress, and maximum occupant load. So I think when we look at the PPD division, we're going to be thinking about the where and the when. In, in this question, so the egress path and um, fire ratings and, and things like that. And then finally, when we get to PDD, uh, if you look at objectives 4.1 and 4.2 for that division, where it's, it's really talking about adherence to um, requirements at a detailed level. Um, so I think that really aligns with the, the how uh, that we've outlined here. So in, in that, uh, when we're talking about the detailed level for egress, we're probably talking about specific door widths, corridor widths, door hardware, and, and all those types of things. So I think with that breakdown in mind, we can uh, we can jump in here and start thinking about who. Okay, thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, I feel like this method kind of really allows us to get down to the very basics of things. Um, and a lot of times, uh, especially for newly licensed individuals, it can become a little overwhelming. So just having this uh, brief moniker, the who, what, where, when, and how, um, gives us a framework that we can structure for. But before we get into the who, I did want to um, just go through a few uh, little definitions here. So we first need to understand a few exit components. The exit. The exit is the actual opening between an interior and exterior space. This needs to be sized properly to allow people to exit, which we'll get into later in the webinar. Uh, then we also have our exit access. So the exit access is the pathway leading to the exit. This must be unobstructive and maintain a height and width so we can uh, safely get all of our occupants from one space to another and to an exit. And then finally, our exit discharge, the pathway from the exit to the public right of way. So not only do we get our occupants um, safely outside the building, but we need to get them a safe distance away from the building, uh, just in case something uh, catastrophic happens in that manner. So this gets our occupants from inside the building to a safe distance from any hazard. Okay, let's dive into the who. So let's look at our first step, who. Determine the number of people needing to exit a space. This project will follow the 2018 International Building Code, or if you hear me say IBC, that's what I'm referencing there. Typically, in your exam setting, uh, relevant code sections will be provided for you. And additionally, the floor areas and uh, any relevant distances will also be given to you as well. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't have the distances on our floor plan today, but um, I will kind of walk through some of that just to uh, operate on a few assumptions there. So now that we see all of our square footages for each one of the rooms, 
whenever we look at our uh, International Building Code, initial chapters cover general and administrative procedures that allow designers to utilize and apply the codes. For this purpose, we're given our Chapter 3, our Occupancy Classification and Use. So um, a little about this chapter that they provide to us. So it says Chapter 3 provides the criteria by which buildings and structures are classified into groups and occupancies. Through the balance of the code, occupancy classification is fundamental in the setting of features of construction. Occupant safety requirements, especially building limitations, means of egress, fire protections, and interior finishes. So as part of this, we can scan down through um, all of the different available areas. So let's go ahead and take a look at our floor plan. I've gone ahead and highlighted um, our dining areas. So we've got the main dining room and the private dining room. As we look through the available options for an occupancy type, we land on assembly A2. The reason we selected this is because the section covers occupancies that include assembly uses intended for food and or drink consumption, and that restaurants, taverns, and bars fit within this category. Therefore, we have our A2 assembly occupancy. So now that we know what our occupancy type is for those two spaces, we'll need to jump to table 1004.5, which is the maximum floor area allowances per occupant. Remember, you'll be given the relevant tables and charts during the exam. So I've got that provided here as well. We look through our available options that most aligns with our occupancy type. We can see that assembly has a few different categories. In this restaurant setting, we can assume that the layout has unfixed tables and chairs. So we look at our occupant load factor, which gives us 15 square feet per occupant. Some of the other areas, uh, if we consider concentrated, uh, these are gonna be chairs only that are not fixed. So if you can think of like a gymnasium space with a bunch of folding chairs uh, set up in kind of an auditorium style setting, uh, standing space would more be along the lines of uh, perhaps you're going to a nightclub or something like that where it's just standing space only and you're not going to be seated. Um, so that details out the different levels that we need for the square footages per our occupants. So as we go to our unconcentrated tables and chairs here, we notice that we have 15 square feet that we need per occupant. So this means that any one time, one person sitting or standing at or around a table occupies 15 square feet. Let's then take our dining room, uh, the main dining room, 1,245 square feet and divide it by 15 square feet. Be sure to, be sure to use your calculator function and round to the nearest whole number. And be sure that any partial occupant load needs to be rounded up for the exam. So we now know that we have an occupant load of 83 occupants within our main dining room. We'll use this same calculation for our private dining room of 250 square feet divided by 15 square feet gives us an occupant load of 17. Okay, so we have our main assembly areas. Let's take a look at a few others. Similarly, we'll look at the tank room and our brew house. The nearest function that we can find in the occupancy calculation is the F2 low hazard factory or industrial space. We again need to look at our table 1004.5 and look for the appropriate function. The tank room serves as mirror storage and the production or brew house is an accessory storage or equipment area. We can select the top line and 300 square feet per occupant. Like the previous calculations, we consider the tank room at 1,000 square feet and divide that by 300 square feet. This gives us four occupants. So Garrick, there's a little bit of a difference between uh, the, the number in this chart and the, and the previous one that we looked at because this one is uh, uh, gross occupants and the last one was net occupants. Can you talk a little bit about um, 
the difference between those two and, and as it pertains to these calculations, and then I'll talk about um, how you might need to apply that to the exam. Um, our occupant loads, uh, the overall net area, I'll scroll back up here. Um, so whenever we're talking about the net square area, or square footages, um, each one of those occupants must occupy or have that 15 square feet of allocated per occupant. Um, and likewise, for the 300 square feet, we'll also need that allocated per occupant there. And functions such as a tank room or a brew house, um, we're not going to have um, as many people in those areas. So that's why they've increased that from, say, 15 to 300. They understand the type and use there. Um, so we know that we can allow um, for four and seven occupants within these areas. We know that we're going to have tank storage. Um, anytime you have any type of production, there's also an added um, hazard level in there that. Um, may require additional square footages just for occupants to um, quickly and safely exit whereas dining rooms um, everybody's going in the same direction towards the exits there yeah that makes sense i think a lot of people get tripped up with the net first gross um, in this particular table and um, uh, if if you if you think about it when it's when it's net square footage you're you're talking about um, just the square footage of the floor that's that's like available for for use right like if you if this tank room for example was based on a net square footage you you wouldn't count all of the space where the the tanks are located and it would it would end up being a different number so it's it's just really um a difference in in how it's calculated now for the purposes of the ARE on a question like this you're probably going to be provided the square footages um, so you don't really have to think about it too much since they're providing that number for you. If you're doing this um, calculation in an office and you are actually calculating the square footage of the room, you've got to know where to draw your your line, your, your polyline, so to speak, and um, how to measure it. But I wouldn't get too tripped up uh, with it uh, for the purposes of the ARE. I would just understand the, the difference between those two factors and how they apply uh, and then use the, um, use the square footage as provided to you. Uh, on this tank room, if you saw this on the ARE and um, you, you were starting to think about, well, maybe I should deduct out the tanks or something like that, uh, don't go down that path because there's there's nothing on this plan to tell you how big those tanks are. Totally unfair for you to have to estimate that they're about a quarter of the room, even though visually they look to be about a quarter of the room. Um, so don't go down that path. Use the information that's provided to you on the exam. Thanks for adding that in there, Chris. Okay, let's move on to a few more of our spaces then. So we look through our storage space, which is 1,665 square feet. And we can, again, we're gonna use that same 300 square feet from our previous calculation for accessory storage. And we get an occupant load of six. So again, the 1,665 divided by our 300 gives us six. For the following areas like the mechanical and grain rooms, these would be classified as accessory storage or equipment rooms. So we can use our 300 square feet yet again. Each space results in one occupant. So again, you'll need to be familiar with your calculator function during the exams. Um, be sure you kind of practice with that, make sure that you have your 65 divided by the 300. Obviously, this is going to come out to a partial occupant, but we can't have partial occupant. If there's half a person, there's one whole person in there. So we always need to round up on those. Okay, let's continue. So commercial kitchen space will require, and we'll use our table 1004.5 again, so 200 square feet per person will divide 640 square feet and 125 square feet, both by 200 square feet, resulting in four and one occupants. So what we did there is we just simply divided uh, this into an easy rectangle to calculate, and then, or sorry, uh, the 640, we separated that into its own rectangular space, and the kitchen as its, or the 125 as its own space just so we could find our easy round numbers there.
So it's also worth noting that restrooms and corridors are considered uninhabitable, where people using these spaces are transient and therefore does not require an occupant load. But we have worked through all areas and occupant factors to give us the total number of occupants for each space and for the building overall. In total, we have 127 occupants in the project. That's a really important point about those um, corridors and bathrooms. And really, if you if you think about it logically and sort of how the code is developed, it's based on how many people are going to be in this in this building, in these spaces, and using it. Um, if you think about bathrooms and corridors, the only people that would ever be using those spaces are the people in the rooms where you're actually eating and cooking and things like that. So that's why it doesn't make sense logically for, for those to have an occupant load applied to them. Uh, and I, I think there are a lot of parts of egress where if you if you think about the intent of the code like that, um, you can you can sort of wrap your head around why things are the way they are. Okay, let's now take a look at the number of required exits. So now that the first step is done, we need to look to our second step and consider the total number of exits needed. As a starting point, we'll consider the requirement of needing at least one exit. Can we maintain the building with one exit or are we going to be required to need a second exit? So just common sense says we have people in a room, we need at a very minimum one exit to allow those folks to be able to leave the building. So we look to our um, section 10006 for the number of exits and exit access doorways. We know that our occupancy types are A for assembly and S for storage. And looking at our chart, which I'll go ahead and show this as well, A and S in the left column, our next column shows the maximum occupant loads of the space if the space only has one exit. For assembly, we can only have 49 occupants or else we'll need a second exit. So if we notice up at the top, our dining room here has 83. So therefore, we know that the main dining room will need two exits. The private dining room has an occupant load less than 49. So we can maintain a single exit for that room. So where we have our private dining room of 17, we can use the sliding door as our only means of egress leaving that space. The dining room with more than 49 will need to have two exits. The S occupancy type allows for spaces to have up to 29 occupants, which no space within the storage category has an occupant load that exceeds this number. Therefore, we can reasonably calculate that their storage space only needs one exit. So now, we know that there are required, at a minimum, two exits. However, if we revisit our narrative from the beginning of the project, we know that the building is not sprinkled. So we look back at the third column where it notes without sprinkler system and feet is in parentheses, which indicates our maximum distance we can travel without a sprinkler. We can only have a maximum distance of 100 feet for people within the storage areas to reach an exit. Therefore, with the two dots, I'll show our dots there, at the top of the screen, they exceed our travel distance for the storage. This means that we need to have an exit closer to that area, bringing the total required number of exits to three. Okay. So we have figured out our who, how many occupants, the what, what number of exits needed. Now we need to figure out where. So we're gonna draw all egress paths to create our egress plan. And I just wanna remind everyone that we're, we're probably at this point moving into the PPD portion of the exam uh, after we've determined how many people and how many exits we're dealing with. Uh, that's that's probably about where you stop at preliminary design or or uh, the early parts of schematic design, like the PA exam covers. Um, I I think also that you you could see a question about that type of thing on the PPD exam itself. That's one of the main reasons that we would suggest studying for the PA exam 
first and then moving to PPD and then PDD, going through those in order like you would on a project. Um, you know, you might study these occupant loads and a number of exit calculations and only see one question or none at all on the PA exam, but you're ready, you've already studied that stuff when you get ready to study for the PPD exam. So it, there's there's no harm in, uh, in learning that stuff a little bit earlier in your um, airy journey than you, than you might think you need to, um, because it, it could apply, and then if it doesn't, you're still going to use it later down the road on your next exam. Our existing building has five exterior doors, whereas we were only required to provide three. We can then have our occupants exit the door nearest their location to shorten the exit access point. So since this is an existing building, we're not having to create any new exits or anything like that, so we can make use of our existing. Our dining room that we know we need to have two exits, we'll need to exit out one way and then exit out the other. The private dining room will also be added on to those occupants leaving, uh, as you can see on the right side of the plan here. Our mechanical rooms and our tank rooms will exit out of the nearest exit. And then our storage area, production and brew house, and our kitchens can all exit out of another room. Or, excuse me, exit out of another uh, doorway there. So while we have three required exits, the, exiting, the existing building provides multiple exit paths. Therefore, we use the shortest distance to an existing exit. Okay, so we know our occupant load is 127 individuals. We have three required exits, but we're providing five, so we meet our code there. We have drawn in our egress paths. Now we must figure out our when portion of our method. When do we need to get our occupants to safety or how quickly do they need to exit the building? Remembering our narrative at the beginning, we are working with an existing building. So first we must determine if the building is required to have any type of rating or time frame in which the occupants can occupy the building during an evacuation. For this, we'll need to consider um, section 602 are construction classifications. We'll also jump to, within that same section, table 601, the fire resistance rating requirements for building elements. This breaks down different categories of construction. For instance, type 1 and type 2 construction types include non-combustible materials such as brick, concrete masonry units, or uh, as we like to say, CMU, or other materials that resist fire. Type three construction includes non-combustible exterior walls, while the interior walls can be combustible. Type four construction is considered heavy timber, or HT, and consists of wood components either sized to resist rapid burning or delay deterioration for a certain period of time. Type 5 can be made up of any building material and is somewhat of a catch-all. The A and B designations within our chart indicate different periods of time within a certain category. For this project, we are going to designate it as either a Type 2B or Type 5B due to the lack of any fire rating at the exterior and interior walls. We'll use Type 2B moving forward. Therefore, we now know that the building does not need to provide ratings at bearing walls or interior partitions, and our floor or roof construction can be of any material. So again, just highlighting here in our type 2B category, all of the zeros here represent that we do not need any type of fire resistance there, or no period of time, rather. So I'll highlight that there. When considering the construction type, the building will be type 2B. All components of the building exterior are combustible material. Interior partitions and roof construction are all combustible materials as well. Okay, 
So if the building itself does not provide any fire resistance, then how are people safely getting out of the building? We'll need to provide some type of rated corridor to safely move people from the interior to the exterior. We'll take a look at table 1020.1, Corridor Fire Resistance Rating. When considering our A occupancy type, we have an occupancy of 42 and 58 along our egress paths. However, these two spaces empty directly to the public right-of-way, meaning that our exit discharge is zero feet. Had these spaces exited into a corridor or a hallway, the corridor would have needed a one-hour fire rating. Luckily, we're not traveling through a corridor, so we can eliminate the A occupancy requirement. When looking at our storage category, we can see that without a sprinkler system, we need to provide a one-hour rated corridor to safely exit the building. But, that is only for occupancies that exceed 30 occupants. Therefore, this question could be noted as a bit of a trick question. No corridors within the building require a fire rating because the occupant loads or travel distance do not require it. That's another uh, component of egress systems where if you, if you think about it, logically it starts to make sense. So um, basically, you, you want to get your occupants into a safe area in the event of a fire as, as quickly as possible. Um, so your travel distances um, come into effect. Since, uh, since none of these occupants are traveling all that far to get to a door, because this building's got doors pretty much all around it with these five doors, it's really not required to get them into a corridor. Now, if, if the only door in, or the only two doors in this building were the two that are near the dining room, you would need you would end up needing a, a rated corridor somewhere to get those storage and the grain room and even the production brew house out safely. You would end up with a corridor um, sort of between the kitchen and the tank room that required a rating. But since we've got so many ways to get out of this building and you're not traveling all that far in the event of a fire, it's not required by the building code. So kind of adding on to what Chris has just explained. So during our online workshops, we always try and find a way of summarizing everything that uh, we have kind of learned according to this question here. So when considering the fire resistance rating for corridors, no egress path accommodates more than 30 occupants. Therefore, no resistance is needed at the corridors. Where the occupant load exceeds 30, the exits empty directly outside. Okay. So how about our travel distance? We know that our building is not sprinkled, so we must look back to table 10006.2.1 to help us identify if we are compliant. For assembly, again, we note that 75 feet travel distance for occupancies above 30, which our travel distance is zero, and therefore meets this requirement. When looking at storage occupancies, we are allowed up to 100 feet of travel distance. No path exceeds the 100 maximum, which now means that both of our exits, both our exit ratings and travel distance are all in compliance. So again, we summarize that with all exits are located within the allowable travel distance for this type of construction without a sprinkler. Next, let's make sure that our egress path is unobstructed. Review Chapter 10, the means of egress within the International Building Code to familiarize yourself with the component requirements that it contains. We can first look at head height. Can people safely travel the egress path without ducking or hunching over or knocking their head or anything like that? So according to 10, 03.2, our ceiling height must maintain a height that is above 7 foot 6 throughout the path. No ceiling is below 8 feet within the existing building, so we now know that we can safely stand up along the egress path. Can we easily maneuver or navigate the egress path? Are there any obstructions or protrusions along the path? So let's take a look at 10. 
to note that we cannot have any objects protruding into the path that narrows the egress path with, uh, excuse me, into the e path that narrows the egress width set out in 1003.3.4 clear width. So we know now that we have a clear width designation. Looking at table 1020.2 minimum corridor width, we can determine that the project falls under the category of any facility not listed in this table, meaning our minimum width is 44 inches. No corridor is narrower than the 44 inch within the building. So again, we summarize that there. So no projections are found along the circulation or egress path. Therefore, whoops, excuse me. Therefore, ceiling height is maintained. All widths are to be a minimum of 44 inches wide. Okay, now we have finally reached our how. So how did we successfully achieve our egress path? The building can safely operate with no more than 127 occupants. Five exterior exits are provided within the permitted travel distance of a non-sprinklered building. No obstructions are present along the path in which height and width requirements are met. That summary kind of sounds like a building code analysis that you'd submit to, well, not exactly, but you, you, would, you would put all of this information on a building code sheet that you would submit to the authority having jurisdiction, probably in the PDD um, portion of the exam. So we're kind of moving now from PPD to PDD where we're documenting all of our egress components and how we comply. And we're also going to start detailing uh, some specific components. There's a lot of stuff to detail when it comes to egress that you'll you'll have to cover during the PDD exam. And, and we'll go through a few of those here. This is not um, all encompassing by any means. And I'll stay on this slide for just a few seconds. Um, but the helpful IBC chapters and sections that we used here, uh, number one was our occupancy type in chapter three. Number two was our occupant load in the table 1004.5. Number three was the travel distance with table 100621. Our building component fire resistance was listed under table 601. And our corridor fire resistance rating is 1020.1. And as I always kind of note during our uh, weekend workshops, uh, be sure to add these to your notes and study materials for future reference and use. Okay, so as Chris had mentioned, let's start working on some of these details. So we're going to look at doors, door width, door hardware, door swing, and illumination. Doors will typically be detailed in the relevant IBC section that allows you to adequately size a revolving or hinged door. So regarding door width, we'll go ahead and note 101011, size of doors. The required capacity of each door opening shall be sufficient for the occupant load thereof and shall provide a minimum clear width, clear opening width of 32 inches. The minimum clear opening height of doors shall be not less than 80 inches. Now under this section, there are a lot of exceptions. However, as a rule of thumb, always plan on a minimum of 32 inches per the code section noted. And I'll also note that um, perhaps maybe not realizing that the 32 inches may be the minimum, but in the information that the exam will give you, they should note in their code information what their minimum width is. So be sure to really read through that carefully. Now, let's say you have a building with a much larger occupancy type. Um, perhaps it's an auditorium or a concert venue or something like that. We'll need to look at a section similar to 1005.3, other means of egress components. The capacity in inches of means of egress components other than stairways shall be calculated by multiplying the occupant load 
served by such component by a means of egress capacity factor of 0.2 inch per occupant. So let's say rather than a brewery, uh, we have a very large auditorium hall. If we had 127 people within that auditorium hall trying to go through an exit, we would take the 127 occupants and multiply that by the capacity factor of 0.2. So no matter what, our minimum opening width must be maintained at 25.4 inches. However, um, just depending on how the question is worded, the minimum width opening of 32 inches needs to be followed. So per the requirement, the lowest or the minimum width that you would need is the 25.4 inches. However, the required minimum clear width would be the 32 inches. So as we have uh, more occupants within a space, we also need to be cognizant of that 0 0.2 uh, in the next section below it would be 0 0.3 so that means that anytime we have lots of occupants in there um, we would really need to use that occupant load factor okay door hardware will need to meet the design requirements determined through the ibc Per the requirements, a force of five pounds cannot be exceeded when opening interior doors and 15 pounds of force for exterior doors. Again, be sure to read the code sections provided to you. They will dictate the requirements to be followed. If you wish to get more in depth with your studies, consider components such as panic hardware or electrical hold opens. So what about door swing? Review section 1010.1.2. Door swing for requirements that indicate how a door should operate in an emergency. For instance, when looking at 1010.1.2.1, direction of swing, the door shall swing in the direction of egress travel where serving a room or area containing an occupant load of 50 or more persons. So in the instance a fire breaks out and all 83 occupants want to exit this dining room, everybody will be in a hurry to reach that exit. And again, just as I kind of noted earlier, the panic hardware, they would be able to push on that panic hardware and exit and our doors swing in the direction of our egress. So if you notice, all of our doors are actually opening to the exterior. So that allows occupants to not have to, um, if we have 42 occupants trying to exit this door and they have to pull the door into them as they have a bunch of people trying to push out, um, that creates an unneeded obstruction there. So that is one of the main reasons why our door swing will go in the direction of the egress path. It's also worth noting when a door swing impacts the egress path, there are additional requirements that need to be met. So consider section 1005.7, which is our encroachment. And in essence, when the door is opened, the required egress width cannot be reduced by more than half. So in a corridor instance, if your occupants are pushing a door open, is that door obstructing that corridor with folks running down the hallway? And if it does, you cannot exceed half of the width of that distance. So the folks exiting from one room and the folks exiting down the corridor can both simultaneously be exiting down the corridor. Illumination requirements would be more in depth than typically required within the exams. Should a question arise regarding this area, read through all of the applicable codes that they provide to you. So this kind of concludes um, my portion of the presentation um, that shows some of the details and how we go about figuring out our who, what, where, when, and how of sizing and locating our egress pathways. I might note that um, under some jurisdictions, the numbers and 
minimum width requirements and all of that may vary or change, but using this method, um, you'll know the process. So whether or not the numbers change, the square footages change or something like that, you'll at least know the process and how to work through those. Uh, so with that, I would like to thank you all for tuning in today um, and giving us part of your day. I'll go ahead and open it up for discussion or Chris, if you'd like to add anything on there as well. Um, I'll yeah, turn it over to you. Let's jump into some questions. We had a number come in through our community and um, we will get through as many as we can in the next 15 minutes or so. So let's talk about rounding. We've got a question asking, why are we not rounding? I think this is about the occupant loads. Um, why are we not rounding down as opposed to up? Um, and this person is saying, if we don't have any room for the fraction of the person, uh, should you round down to calculate only for the person or people you can actually fit? Uh, what do you what do you think about rounding, Garrick? <laughs> this is kind of the glass half empty and glass half full. Uh, the question there said, uh, if we can't fit the entire person in there, but we can fit part of a person in there. So I think the code looks at it from a point of view that, okay, we have a portion of a person that fits in there, so we have to include them as a full person. Um, so that was the way I had always learned that we just, no matter what you do, you always round up because it's better to be on that safe side. Um, and any type of authority having jurisdiction really wants you to err on that side of <laughs> being as safe as you can be. That's what I'd say as well. And uh, well, I'll, I'll preface this first by saying that for the purposes of the ARE, um, just round up and don't think about it too much. Uh, a question might also give you specific rounding instructions, and if it does, it's great. Um, but don't rely on that. Just round up and move on to move on with the question or move on to the next question. Um, I think the argument made is is a good one, and I I, I can see the point. Um, I would also say that as as the architect, you're responsible for health, safety, and welfare, and one occupant usually doesn't make a difference in the design or the calculation of, of what you're doing. So um, what what you're stamping, what you're putting your name on, why would you not want to just take the cautious approach and add that extra occupant is is kind of the way I look at it and cover your bases. Um, so that's, that's probably what I would do as well. Um, we've got a similar occupant load question asking, why do each of the mechanical spaces require individual calculations? It's unlikely each of these spaces would be staffed concurrently. Could you add up the square footage for all mechanical spaces and then run the calculation? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Garrick. I would say that um, kind of thinking about what we just talked about, if you add the spaces first and then divide, your rounding is going to be off. You, you'll be rounding once and not um, each individual time. So it, it kind of comes back to taking the conservative approach a little bit and doing each room individually. Um, I would also say that um, when you go to do your building code documentation, it's very typical that each room has an occupant load listed for it, every single space. Um, so you might as well get ahead of that and get started on, on calculating the occupant load for each space. But is that your experience, Garrick? Uh, yes, I would completely agree with that, that being on the conservative side is a little bit better. Um, let's say in one of those mechanical rooms, we have an electrical panel, and then in another room, we have our hot water heater. Um, if we have two technicians there, one is in working on the hot water heater and he has his partner go over and turn off the electrical panel or something like that, well, then you already have kind of one occupant in one room and one occupant in the other. So we can never kind of anticipate, oh, there would only be one technician working at a time or something like that. So we do err on that side of caution that at any one time, how many people can we fit in this building and how many people do we need to get out? So just as you had mentioned there, just kind of use each individual space. Don't try and add them all up and divide and then round that way because you may be cutting out one occupant here, one occupant here. And then before you know it, um, you've really reduced your occupant load as to what it actually is. Yeah, egress is probably not the place to, uh, to look to cut corners, I'd say. Um, you know, architects are always talked about as generalists, but and on on the topics like egress, we're the the expert on the project in egress. So it's really, really up to us to make sure that um, we're doing all this correctly and um, up to code. Another question: We've got a lot of question about occupants. So this one is: If you have a small closet, do you count it in your egress calculations? 
I think I would preface this one by saying you should not run to run into the situation on the ARE because your um, I would say if a question gives you an occupant load for a closet, then you should count it. And if it doesn't, then you shouldn't. Um, so that's kind of for the exam. But in, in real life, Garrick, what's your experience with that? Uh, I believe it's within the general um, administrative and kind of definitions areas. It tells you or defines what an inhabitable space is. And they have a minimum square footage that you have to meet to consider it as an occupiable space. So if I, I think it's something like 49 square feet and below, uh, you can consider that as a closet. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but again, the code and then I'm guessing the exam both will give you some way of defining what a habitable space is and what you can leave off as closets or something like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially when you think about it uh, logically. If it's um, less than 49 square feet, you probably don't have somebody dedicated in that in that space all the time. I Something that comes to mind is uh, on, on buildings I've worked on where we've got electrical closets on each floor or maybe on every few floors, those those closets usually don't have occupants because they're less than uh, less than their required size for a habitable space. However, the electrical room in, in the basement uh, or in the cellar would um, so that's that's kind of a good way to think about that. Um, Garrett, can you go back to the floor plan for a second? We had a few questions about the grain room for this specific example. Yep, and I just wanted to clarify. Uh, this question says, if the grain room is storage, how can egress pass through the storage area? Um, I think the answer is that there's not egress passing through any storage area at the grain room. And just to clarify for everyone, the grain room is that area with the um, in the lower right-hand corner of this plan. The title of grain room is outside of the room itself, just for legibility, but it is the room directly, yep, where Garrick's sketching. So that is an interior room. We had somebody asking if that room is outside and, and whatnot. Um, that is an interior room that opens directly to the production and brew house, which makes sense. That's where you need the, brew, uh, the grain. Um, and there is no egress through... Um, through storage, right, Garrick? There's, there's also, this is getting really in the weeds, um, just from my experience working on the project, but uh, there is an exception within the IBC that allows us, since it's an accessory storage space that directly is in use or something to that nature, um, we are allowed to kind of exit through the production and brew house. So how, I understand kind of the both the, um, kind of storage and storage, uh, but this is kind of in tandem and we made use of an exception there. Uh, the exam is not going to get into that detailed on it, but uh, for simplicity, we just went ahead and showed it on our egress path here. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, for the next question here, this one's about travel distances. Um, they're, they're asking, are they calculated from the remote, most remote part of the room, or does this portion of the exam not take that into account? So maybe, Garrick, if you could um, sketch out where these travel distances would, where you would start these in the room itself if you were calculating the actual length of a, of a travel distance. I'll try and get my pen to work here. So yes, you would go ahead and kind of include it from the furthest point in that room there. And then you could cut a straight diagonal that goes to your exit. Um, and then that would be your overall egress or your travel distance, excuse me. Um, we also have rooms such as our dining room. Uh, there's gonna be a stipulation where if you have two exits, um, it has to be one half the distance of the diagonal across the room or something like that. So saying one half here, whatever this distance is, um, your two exits cannot be closer than that distance there. I think that's getting a little bit too far in depth for what you'll see within the um, exams. But just take note that if they say, oh, um, the exits cannot be within such and such amount close to one another, then that's kind of what they're indicating there. Um, but again, you would go from that furthest remote part 
to any portion of your exit there. And then if you have a space with two exits, um, your exits cannot be closer than one half the dimension of the diagonal across the room. Yeah, I think for I think for the purposes of the ARE, there I can't think of a question type where you would need to measure the the common path of regress travel or anything like that yourself. I feel like that information's always got to be provided for you just based on the format of the questions these days um, on ARE 5.0. I could imagine a question that like a multiple choice question where you were provided a few different diagrams and asked which of these represents the common path of egress travel. In that case, you would need to know that it comes from the most remote point of the room and takes the direct path of travel to the exit. Um, but I can't, I, I don't think you need to worry about is that red line, you know, 70 feet or 70 feet, six inches. It's, it, it's, you do in real life, but it, there's just not a, a question type on the ARE where that would come into play. Um, all right, we've got a question about minimum size of doors. So this person is asking, on the actual exam, how do you know which is the answer, 25.4 inches or 32 inches? And we see this question a lot. I would say that the, the question itself has to give you instructions on, on how to answer this. If the question is asking you for the minimum calculated egress width, I would answer 25.4. If it's simply asking you the minimum egress width and you come up with this calculation, but you know the actual minimum is 32, then I would answer 32. So I think you need to pay really close attention to the instructions in a, in a question um, when you're answering a question about egress width and look for that word calculated or, or something like that. That should um, definitely tip you off. Let's see what else. We've got a lot of questions and we're not gonna be able to get to them all, but I will respond to all of the questions um, on our community if we don't get to them. Um, someone had a question about um, combustible combustible versus non-combustible materials and um, how, how can you figure out if a material is combustible or non-combustible? You set it on fire. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> there are um, fire code ratings um, spelled out within um, various um, publications. Um, your authority having jurisdiction or your code department or something like that will have um, the most recent or whatever year fire code um, that they follow. Uh, if you really want to get into the nitty-gritty of determining just kind of what those resistance ratings are. They're all spelled out within the charts there. Um, but then the IBC kind of does like a surface level of um, these materials, such as like your wood framing, um, insulation and things like that. Um, they'll even give like a flame spread rating. So how quickly the flames would spread across an area um, how long it would take for those materials to burn. Um, if you have things like concrete um, or CMU, uh, that will definitely have a higher uh, fire rating to it. Um, so there's all kinds. I would recommend just opening up the code book. Um, it's not the funnest thing to read, but it definitely has a lot of really helpful information in there. Um, and then they do specifically have uh, sections in there for fire ratings, flame spread, and all of that. Uh, if you're looking at submittals, uh, sometimes the materials themselves uh, will have their own rating included on there. So you always want to check those back with your specifications, make sure those align, um, and that you are meeting that requirement there. Yeah, I'm glad you covered flame spread because we had a question about that as well. And I would say for the purposes of the exam to become familiar with um, some common structural um, materials or systems that are included within each type, each construction classification so that um, you're familiar with them for the exam. And I think if it gets down to a, a real nitty gritty question where you've got to determine uh, if if uh, a material is combustible or non-combustible, you'll you'll probably have some information in a case study or or in a question itself that'll help you answer that question. So become familiar with the the most common ones, but um, 
I wouldn't expect a question that's asking you if a specific uh, chemical composition of plastic is combustible or non-combustible. You're just not expected to memorize that, that type of information, for example. Um, well, like I said, we had a ton of questions come in and don't have time to answer them all, but I will get you all answers and I really appreciate um, everyone contributing to all these questions um, and looking forward to answering them later today. Um, but that is it for today, and I just want uh, to give a reminder that our next Airy Live will be on March 16th, and we'll be talking all about firm financial documents. You can go to go.blackspectacles.com forward slash podcast to sign up or check out the community page for this episode. The lucky winner of the Black Spectacles t-shirt is Tracy Klish. Congrats to you, and we'll be reaching out via email shortly with some more information. Finally, please stick around for a few minutes after the broadcast to take our survey and share any suggestions you have for future episodes of ARE Live. We read them all and we use your feedback to make the podcast as helpful as it can be. Thanks for watching.